I'll be reading the first 11 verses from Mark chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I'm going to pray um, and ask for God's help as we begin. Lord, we thank you very much for the time that we have this evening, for the pleasure of seeing one another, of singing. Um, We pray now that you would speak to us through this passage, that you would grant each one of us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to be shaped by the truth that we see here of Jesus and his kingdom. Well, please help us for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Um, in history, there are, there are great events or moments that shape the way the world is going. Um, for example, many of us, I guess, will remember where we were on September the 11th, uh, 2001. I was about to play rugby when a guy called Martin, Martin Ford, who's in my year, he shouted, lads, you've got to come back in and see this. And, and he was right, wasn't he? Because that is an event that has shaped, it's still shaping the world in which we live. Um, as it stirred up world affairs in, in that way. But um, I guess it, um, the moments that are the, um, the key points, the t- turning points in history are not always so obviously momentous. Um, So imagine, and you can tell I'm not a scientist from the way that I explain this, but imagine you're standing in Michael Faraday's laboratory as this electricity thing begins to make sense. Or imagine you're standing in the crowd in Sarajevo in August 1914 when a shot rings out and Archduke Franz Ferdinand is killed. Now, I suppose if you were there, you would have had some sense that this is a significant event, but you might not have recognized the full import of them, not like we do, looking back. Well, this evening, in the passage that we've got, um, we are looking at an event which, in the mind of Mark, the writer, is is right up there uh, on the list of the most significant events of all time. This man, who the book is about, Jesus of Nazareth, who'd been electrifying Israel with his teaching and his miracles. And finally, here, he rides into the capital, into Jerusalem. It's the beginning of the climax of the book, the final section that we're looking at. The city would have been swollen already with people for the festival of the Passover. They're swollen with people and excitement. And as Jesus comes in, the crowds cheer. This great man arrives, 
and he's causing quite a stir. And so these would have been significant events. People would have felt that. But in the way that Mark records these things, we're meant to see that these are not, it's not just local news. This is global, historical significance of events that are happening here. Because what we have here is a key point, a key moment in the plan of God for all of history. If you're here and you're not yet a convinced Christian, what we have in this passage is the claim that behind or overarching all of history, there is a plan of God, that he has a plan. He's made this world and he has a plan for it, a plan to to put things right again by lifting up his son Jesus. And he has explained that plan in the promises that come to us in the Bible. He's explained what he's going to do. And Mark is saying that this moment, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, is a crucial moment in the advancing of that plan. Um, on the rare occasions when I'm allowed to drive a long way on my own, like I'm going down the motorway to England to um, see my mother-in-law or something like that, um, uh, I, what I do is, because it feels silly when you're using a sat-nav and it's only going to talk to you every 70 miles, it seems like a waste. So I make a, uh, well, I have a piece of paper and I write down the key things in felt-tip pens, it's big and I can see it, and I put it on the passenger seat. So it says, A702, M74, M6, brackets, Westmoreland is junction 38 and stop there for lunch if possible. M5, junction 9, brackets, A46, and then a bit of local stuff, and that's, that's it. The, the big steps of the journey are planned out, and that's so I can glance down without crashing and see what's coming next. Well, Mark is saying that in a similar way, the plan of God is laid out in the Old Testament and that what we have tonight is one of the crucial steps. It's one of the big things in the felt-tip pen that, okay, this is what's happening next as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Which is why we need to understand these events and the whole of the section, Mark 11 to 13, over the next few weeks as we look at it. We need to understand this plan because it tells us where the world has come from, why it is now the way it is, and it tells us also where the world is going. And I don't just mean this in a kind of intellectual curiosity sense, you know, um, about the, the shape of history, the kind of thing we might read about in a certain kind of newspaper editorial that tries to say, where is the world going? I mean, really personally for each of us, because all of us have to make our choices in life. We have to set our course And we do that, whether consciously or unconsciously, on the basis of a view of how the world is and where it's going. That's true, isn't it? Even if maybe we couldn't articulate or spell out, my worldview is X, we do have a view of the way that the world is going that affects the choices we make, the things that we value. And that's why this sort of thing, as we look at it in the Bible, the big sweep, it's not just kind of intellectual, conceptual. It matters in daily life because it affects our ambitions. You know, what are the things that you value, that you want to achieve in your life? Mark is saying that there's this plan of God and we need to frame our ambitions in the light of those or else we'll waste our time, maybe. That's the risk if we achieve things and set our hearts on things that won't matter in the end because history is not going in that direction. The Bible says to us, look, this is God's plan. Live in the light of it. 
That is how you can make sure that you're not wasting your time. That's how you know that you can be safe, that the choices you make are safe, that they are in line with God's plan, that you won't end up being left behind. That's what Mark 11 is going to help us with and the other chapters that we look at. It reminds us of what God has laid out for this world. It's what we're going to see over the coming weeks. But it starts here with this arrival, and I'd like to talk about that under three headings. We're going to look through the passage under three headings, the first of which is that this is the long-expected arrival of the king. This is the long-expected arrival of the king. It's a perfectly ordinary thing um, for an important person to make a big entrance. So I remember at school, everyone would be there for assembly, and the headmaster would emerge at the back, and everyone would have to um, stand up and shut up, and he would process down because he was important. Or in sports, if you're there at the football match, there's a big fanfare as the teams run down the tunnel out onto the pitch. They often have those flame things, which are quite cool. Um, you wonder if they'll... It'll, incinerate the referee, Um, or if you were um, mad enough to be up at 4 a.m. watching Floyd Mayweather and uh, Manny Pacquiao, a boxing match, they have their theme tunes, don't they, as they come out, and there's all the lights and a big entrance. But nobody does big entrances like royals. Um, If you were watching the... um, the Jubilee in 2012, you'll remember the spectacle of the Queen. She comes down the water in the barge, the golden barge, and then out into the carriage, and a wonderful procession. And it was the same in the ancient world as well, the glorious procession of a monarch into the capital. And just the bare facts of Mark 11, that is what we have here. That's the basic idea, that Jesus has been heading towards Jerusalem for some time, and now he makes his big entrance. So there are cheering crowds, There are people putting their cloaks on the floor for him to walk on or chopping leaves down, putting them on the ground. You see straight away from the bare facts of this that this is a royal arrival. But as we look at the details of how Mark tells the story, there's a lot more going on that that reinforces this, especially when we understand the Jewish setting. Let me highlight five things really quickly. First of all, he's entering the royal city. So in Jerusalem, it's not just any city. It's the capital city. It is the royal city. It's all the Psalms and the prophets speak about the glory of Zion. That's Jerusalem. When the Messiah will reign there, the city of the king. That's the significance of this place. It's a bit like, uh, I guess, um, the end of the Second World War. The symbolism of Charles de Gaulle walking down the Champs Elysees up to the Arc de Triomphe. It's that kind of symbolism. Or uh, one day, maybe, Alex Salmon walking down the Royal Mile to Holyrood Palace. And whether that's a prospect that fills you with um, dread or joy, you understand that this is significant geography. This is the Royal City. Um, Secondly, his mode of transport Just looking at the the words on the page, there's a lot of column inches given over to the fact that Jesus is riding a donkey. Um, I think seven out of the 11 verses are are linked with the donkey. And we have to ask why. Um, Partly, um, the way that Mark records the story, it emphasizes the commands that Jesus has in the situation. So he says, I want you to get me a donkey. If you go there, you'll find one tied up. Somebody might ask you this. 
in which case, just say that, and it'll be fine. And then Mark says, they went, somebody said that, they said what Jesus told them to say, and it was fine. It kind of happens in the steps that he laid out. It, it shows his authority as the king. But there's slightly more to it than that. Um, Zechariah 9, one of the prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling here, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Also in Genesis 49, which is the chapter where Jacob Israel is blessing his 12 sons at the end of his life, and he says different things to each one of them. And to Judah, he talks about that the, the royal house, the king will come from Judah, and he will tie his donkey to a choice vine. And if you, if you look down at our verses in Mark, five times that verb, you will tie, untie, tie, untie the donkey, picking up that reference to Genesis 49. He's a king. He's the king, long expected. Thirdly, um, it's a donkey on which no one has ever sat. A little detail in verse 2. You know, like a brand new car for the important person. Although I don't know that brand new donkeys have that nice smell. Um, In the Old Testament, the fact that no one had ever ridden it before or uh, an ox on which no yoke had ever been placed. It's a sign of a very special function. Uh, uh, it's been specially set apart for a job for God. So if you want to look later on Numbers 19 verse 2 or 1 Samuel 6 verse 7, this is a special um, a special thing for this animal to have never been ridden before. Um, fourthly, people spread their cloaks in the road. Verse 8, um, I guess partly that's just a practical way to honor royalty in rough and dirty roads so that even the donkey doesn't have to get its feet muddy. It won't splash up or anything. But also, there's Old Testament resonances here. So uh, in 2 Kings 9, as Jehu is crowned as king over Israel, the people spread their cloaks before him to walk across. The resonance is there again. Jesus is the long-expected king. And then finally, look at verse 10 and see what the crowds are chanting. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. It's unmistakable, isn't it? David was the greatest king in Israel's history. And the Old Testament promise was that one day a king in David's line would one day come. Great David's greatest son. So all the way through the passage, the basic point is being made here that Jesus is the long-expected king. It's about his identity. The long-expected ruler has arrived, just as the Old Testament had promised and prophesied. He's here, at last. And we, we mustn't miss that simple point, just the simple point that Jesus is being here proclaimed as the king. Um, perhaps for us that's not you know, rocket science, that's not a really new idea, that Jesus is an a exalted or royal figure. But for Mark's original readers, it would have been. You know, remember he's writing for a Roman world that was only just coming to terms with Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. People would say, what, the crucified Jewish carpenter? And Mark would say, yes, but also God's anointed ruler. Now, it's not rocket science for us. We we know this. We've been around church for any length of time. Jesus is the king. 
But it is worth touching base with this most fundamental truth from time to time because it is easy to forget, not in our heads, but in our hearts and lives. It's easy to stop viewing Jesus as the king or to lose our feel of what that means because it's how we think of rulers and these things is so far away from what Mark is talking about. As Callum prayed for, I'm glad we prayed for that. In four days, we're about to elect our rulers. You don't elect a king. In the ancient world, you, um, you know, we're not afraid to speak openly about our rulers. On, on the TV, they're um, made into a bit of a joke. Or even as we think about the royal family, I guess they'll be popular at the moment with the birth of the little girl. Has, has her name been announced yet? No, shakes of the head. Oh, well, interesting. Um, we think of them as likable figures. We're interested in their lives. You know, they haven't got any real power. But that's thousands of miles away from what Mark means and what people would have understood originally when it says that Jesus is the king. Because politically, the background is Rome with Caesar, who rules absolutely. Or theologically, the background is in Israel, King David, who ruled absolutely. He was a godly man, he was no tyrant, and yet, in his own words, he would rule the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus is Lord. This passage is helping us just remember what that really means when we say that Jesus is Lord. As we get the the royal flavor of this, he's the king. Now, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I, I wonder if I wonder how you feel about the choice that stands before you as you consider Jesus. I'm not saying this is what you think. I don't know what you think, but uh, people often say, "Well, I, I might be interested in Jesus if he could help me." You know, if, if he could help me, or I, I'm interested in Jesus, but I'm a bit busy at the moment. Or people even say, "Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, isn't isn't he more for the children?" But we read Mark's word, not at all. Not at all. When Mark presents and supports with evidence the claim that Jesus is Lord, he's the ruler, that is a kind of a hard, adult, non-negotiable kind of a statement. I wonder if you know this story, you must have heard it, about the American naval ship that is sailing at night and gets a signal um, about another vessel in its path. It seems to be on a collision course, so this big naval vessel sends out a signal saying, I suggest you change course. You know, we're the USSS whatever, and we request politely that you alter your bearing by seven degrees starboard. And a message comes back saying, Roger, who received that, but we suggest you move your course. And you imagine the captain of this proud vessel saying, I'm the captain of the USS whatever, and we're the flagship of the Seventh Fleet, a a Titan-class warship, and we have so many hundreds of people on board and so many weapons. I suggest you move. And the response comes back, this is a lighthouse. To say that Jesus is the king is that kind of statement. It's that kind of non-negotiable, hard fact that we can't patronize him or negotiate with a person like that. 
It's a reminder for Christians too, isn't it? I, I need to ask, you need to ask, do our lives reflect the fact that we are under royal authority? Are we ruled by Jesus? Would that be a good description of your life, being ruled by Jesus? Or are we making deals with him and taking advice from him in a way that is 100 miles away from what a ruler would be treated like? Uh, I'll, I'll do this for you, Jesus, but not that. I'll let you control that part of my life, Jesus, but not this. Well, that isn't how it works if Jesus is the long-expected king. So there's a little bit of royal authority here that's a helpful reminder for us. But hang on a minute, because as we look at the passage, there's a lot that doesn't quite fit with that authority note. There's not a lot in here that isn't really this... It doesn't really belong with the traditional show of royal force. And that, that's true, isn't it? So the second thing we need to see tonight is that this is the unexpected arrival of the king. It's the long-expected arrival of the king, but it's also the unexpected arrival of the king. And when the Old Testament spoke about the arrival of the king, a lot of, it, a lot of the time that is in terms that are triumphant triumphant language that when the king comes, that's the moment of victory, um, the moment of vindication for God's people as his enemies fall before him and he saves his people. And yet here is Jesus riding into a city on a donkey and a few days later, they're going to kill him. Even in the passage, look at verse 11, please. Jesus rides into the, te- into the city. He arrives at the temple And nothing happens. He just has a look around and then he goes away again until the following day. Our our Bibles call it the triumphal entry. But it's it's not actually in some ways that triumphal. Certainly in Old Testament terms, this is not the great triumphant arrival that had been promised there. There's something that's not quite right about this. All of which points us back to what we saw last week, if you were here, and what Mark's been doing in the previous chapters, showing us that Jesus is the king, but he's not the same kind of king as the rulers of this world. Have a look back, please. Mark 10, 45. I'll read from verse 42, actually. And Jesus called them, that's his disciples, to him and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples, it seems, had a partial understanding of the Old Testament. They were looking for the fortune and glory of which it speaks when the Messiah comes to reign. So in in the passage from Zechariah that I quoted from earlier on, when the Messiah arrives, he saves the day in Jerusalem. He smashes God's enemies. He exalts his people. um, But... um, that chapter ends with a kind of street party as the Messiah saves God's people. It's a glorious scene. But the Old Testament also speaks about the suffering of the king when he comes. 
and the fact that he would lay down his life. So a little bit later on in Zechariah, it's it's remarkable when you read it. It talks about the shepherd who is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, who is rejected, pierced, and killed. So when we say that the arrival of the Messiah was unexpected, that wasn't the fault of the Old Testament. It wasn't that God had been unclear. And yet the disciples, they couldn't get their heads around the suffering bits. I suppose it's natural, isn't it? They wanted to be part of something that was all and only glorious instead of something that achieved its glory through the pain of showing grace. There is a a humility in a king who rides into the city on a donkey. Uh, uh, There is a peacefulness and a humility in the king who rides into town on a donkey instead of a war horse. He has not come this time to crush his enemies in that conventional sense. We'll see that he does come in triumph to judge his enemies. But at this point, he does that by laying down his life for them. So there is something unexpected about this Jesus as king and the kingdom that he is establishing here. And last, like we saw last week, this is a really big lesson for Christians. It's a big lesson when we want to be strong feel strong, when we want to look good, feel good, when we want to win. Well, I'm afraid that's, that's just not the sort of person Jesus is. That's not what his kingdom is like. He came to Jerusalem to lose on purpose, to lay down his life for the good of others. And that's what we're to follow. So this week, with our friends and our families at work, we need to think about what it means to lose on purpose for the good of other people. We need to have a go at looking foolish so that others might be helped. What does that mean in practice? Well, it could mean lots of things. Um, It could mean being the first to apologize, even though it wasn't all your fault, so that the relationship survives, doesn't break down, you can keep on trying to help that person, an awkward relative perhaps. Um, it means having a go, inviting friends to events, maybe to, to quench that was mentioned, even though your friends might say no and might think less of you for having invited them. But you have a go because you know that there are questions that they need to think about. It means sticking your oar into that skeptical conversation in the staff room, even though you know you won't get a fair hearing, because that might just also get people thinking. Following this unexpected Messiah means that Christians are those who lose on purpose, who allow themselves to look bad on purpose, who sometimes allow themselves to get hurt on purpose for the good of other people. It's not what our kings and rulers are like, but it is what this king is like. And it's not that he or we act like a victim or say, woe is me. As he went into Jerusalem, Jesus had a strong sense of purpose, possibly even joy as he went about his mission. But nevertheless, he went in there to lose on purpose And that is the example he has left for us. He rode into town on a donkey, and three days later, he left the city carrying his own cross. 
This is the unexpected arrival of the king. But what about then? What about all the other stuff in the Old Testament? What about all those other notes of glory and victory? All that stuff in Zechariah about the Messiah coming to save the day from the Mount of Olives and crush the enemies of God and bring in everlasting joy. What about all that? Has Jesus failed? Well, no. The last thing we need to see this evening is that this is the unfinished arrival of the king. This is the unfinished arrival of the king. When I, when I drive to Worcestershire or wherever it is I'm going, you don't do all the steps at once. You don't do all the steps of your journey. You don't fulfill them all in one go. You do one, and then you do another, and then you do another. Well, that's what Mark is saying here, that there is one step and then there is another. That's where Mark 11 leaves us. This is the king's first arrival. In Jerusalem, he established his identity as God's Messiah. He uh, accomplished part of his purpose by laying down his life. But there is more to follow. Out of all that the Old Testament says, there is more to follow. What more? Well, lots of things. But here are two in that chapter in Zechariah 9, um, which speaks about the king arriving on the donkey, it also speaks about God bringing in the nations and purifying the Gentiles, winning them over, making them part of his people Israel. And isn't that what we see now? That part of the plan being fulfilled all over the world, even in Edinburgh, as people from all kinds of different backgrounds put their trust in Jesus and become part of God's kingdom. It started back in Mark. We'll see Mark 15, when the Gentile centurion, as Jesus dies, says, surely this man was the son of God. It started then, but this next part of the plan, bringing in the nations to see who Jesus is, to become part of his kingdom, that's for now. What else is still to come? Most obviously, it's the big final victory when Jesus returns, when, as the prophets, as Zechariah describes, the great battle when the Messiah comes to finish off God's enemies publicly, fully, and finally. It's hard for us. It was hard for them because we read the Old Testament and all these things, these elements are kind of mixed in together but Jesus comes and Mark's explaining it, that there's one thing and then another and then another. That here Jesus comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. But then he'll come again, not to serve, but to be served. Please could you turn back to Mark 8 and um, you'll see this dual horizon, even in what Jesus himself says. In Mark 8, 38, right at the end of the chapter, In amongst the humility of Jesus, saying, no, no, I've come to lay down my life, he talks about another coming, which sounds rather different. Mark eight thirty-eight. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. You see that? He's not talking about a gentle, humble coming there, is he? And um, in a few weeks, when we get to Mark 13, we'll see the same thing. 
as Jesus speaks about his second coming. That Jesus, he, he came, he arrived. He inaugurated his kingdom. It, it is arriving now, it is coming. It is, as people enter the kingdom now, and one day he will return. That is God's plan. And because he's kept the first lot of promises, it gives us confidence that he is keeping and will keep all the rest of them. So that's what this passage is doing. It's mapping out what God is doing in the world. Not so that we can see it and be intellectually satisfied, but so that we can live in line with this plan. We can live in line with where the world is really going. What does that mean? It means as we look back and we see that the king has come to lay down his life, we accept his pardon, we follow in his footsteps as we look back. It means that we look forward and we, we live in a way that recognizes that there is a day coming when Christ will return in glory. It means we need to be ready for that day. We need to make peace with him so that when the king comes, we meet him as a friend. And it means now, as the kingdom is coming in, we play our part in that as we serve the king and as we speak to others that they might also be ready for that future day. That is what this passage is saying. Jesus arrived. His kingdom is arriving now. And one day he will arrive again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your purposes are not hidden from us. And we ask for help now to live in the light of your great plan. Lord, how we thank you that you came in grace. We thank you that your kingdom is coming now as your grace breaks into the lives of men and women. Lord, please help us to live in the light of what remains to be seen of that great day when Jesus will return. Help us to be ready. Help us to help as many other people also to be ready too. Lord, please, with this plan of yours, underpin and shape our lives very powerfully so that we might be safe, and so that we might live lives that are not wasted. For your name's sake. Amen.